People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. What I love about People of Note is the vast range of guests I meet and how lucky I am to meet them. And today is an example because my guest is Kirsten Neuscheffer, who is one of two South African entrants into the very famous Golden Globe race, which is a yacht race. And uh, Kirsten is madly sorting out her yacht in preparation for this. And so I want to find out what makes this lady tick. Kirsten, welcome. Welcome. Thank you, Rodney. A brave girl indeed, may I say. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's an honor to speak to you. Can we just start talking about the Golden Globe race, just so that people know actually what the race is all about? Because I'm told that it's one of the most dangerous in the world. Is that true? I guess it might be true. Um, It's certainly classified as one of the longest, loneliest races in the world. And it is dangerous in the sense that you're taking relatively small and therefore also slow boats down into the Southern Ocean, which is the roughest part of the ocean. And you're spending um, months and months down there. And you can't outrun storms as bigger, faster, more modern boats would do. So in that respect, it could be considered quite dangerous. So... Does every entry have to be on his or her own? It's not a crew, it's you on your own. That's it. It's a single-handed, non-stop, round-the-world race. Non-stop? Non-stop, yes. So you can't pull into any port or anything? No, not at all. You leave a port in France, uh, Les Sables d'Olonne, and you um, you sail non-stop. You first sail towards Brazil, then you sail towards South Africa. You come quite close inshore around Cape Town, but you don't get off the boat. You don't get assistance. You don't get food, water, tools, nothing like that. And then you carry on across the Indian Ocean, past Hobart, past New Zealand, past Cape Horn. And once you've rounded Cape Horn, you head back up to France without ever getting off the boat. (laughs) How long is that? Sorry, it just sounds unbelievable. How long is that normally? Um, It would be an absolute, in my opinion, minimum of seven months. Seven months? Yes, because that's the time that the last um, competitor in 2018 won the race on, was seven months. So, uh, And this route that we're sailing in 2022 is a little bit longer, so I don't think it'll be under seven months. So for seven months you are alone on this yacht on the sea? That's correct. So you need to be completely self-sufficient. You need to have enough food. You need to catch water for rain. You need to have enough tools so that you can deal with any eventualities out at sea as they crop up. So, But that just makes me think, now, what about food? How can you keep food for seven months? What, what do you eat? Well, you land up eating a lot of processed food, I guess, uh, canned food. Uh, tin food is good because there's also water in it, so you can drink the water if you're running low on water. Um, but then you take a lot of dried foods as well, like dried legumes and um, rice and pasta and potato mash and that kind of thing. So you're really vastly living off processed food. But um, if you're lucky, you could catch a fish here or there and you can sprout things like beans and lentils so that you can supplement your um, diet with something that tastes a little bit fresh. And initially you can take cabbage and potatoes and pumpkins and you know things that last quite long, but 
it wouldn't really last much more than about three months, and after that, you're on processed food. <laughs> yes. And drinking, is it just water? I mean, you could take whatever you want. So I'll probably take some, you know, orange juice and stuff uh, mm. so that you can supplement your vitamin C. But it's mainly water. So you fill up your water tanks and you take a few extra jerry cans. And then every time there's a good rain squall, you try and catch water and just top up what you have. Gosh. So. You know what? Of course, the first thing that one said sounds incredibly lonely, but then you've done this before, haven't you, quite a few times? I have done long-distance, uh, single-handed uh, passages before, but I've never done a passage that's this long. So the longest I've spent out at sea has been just on two months, and this is pushing it up to, you know, seven, eight, nine months. That's really a long, depends. that's a big difference, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's, so it's going to be a new experience to me, but I um, I know that I do feel comfortable alone out at sea, and I'm kind of hoping, thinking that there's a peak that you cross over after which possibly it doesn't matter too much whether it's going to be two months or four months or six months. Uh, okay. But I'm I'm going to find <laughs> out. <laughs> but do you listen to music or do you take tapes along or do you have internet? No, this is <laughs> That's the... That's a stupid question, I suppose. <laughs> well, not really because, I mean, modern <clears throat> boats, you could have some measure of internet via sat phone. Yeah. Um, but because of the nature of this race, it's a retro race. So it has to conform to what was available in 1968. So uh, we do have sat phones for safety reason. Uh, we can speak to the race organizers only, but you can't phone a friend because you feel like a chat. Um, so you you are pretty much alone out there. Uh, you can make radio contact uh, on marine um, VHF and SSB. That's it. So you can speak to other mariners out at sea. But um, entertainment is very important. So I I will take music. And because of the retro um, nature of the race, we're only allowed cassettes, no CDs, no digital music. Oh, really? Yes. So, um, But it is a definite mood lifter to be able to play music, especially if you are feeling a bit lonely or you've just gone through a bit of rough weather or something. It can mm -hmm. just, you know paramount to your mental and health. reading as well I suppose yes and reading especially because you don't um, have dialogue with people so being able to um, read books is for me very important so I know some races might not take books because they don't want the extra weight but I will because I think it's um, it's uh, essential <laughs> are you limited with weight and stuff like that I suppose you are with these retro boats now that you talk about yes well um, I mean the less weight you have on your boat the faster your boat could be so you limit yourself um, just to try and keep the boat light and keep the weight and everything balanced properly on the boat. But uh, the design of boat that I uh, chose is by design a heavy boat, so it will deal better with a heavy load as well. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to limit myself on, you know, 10 extra books or something like that. And another question about the race. How many, do you know how many women are involved? Um, I'm the only woman uh, in this 2022 edition. Um, and there was one in 2018, but at this stage, I'm the only one for this upcoming race. And it's the first time you've done the Golden Globe race. And it's the first time because, in fact, this is only the second replica of the 1968 race that's taken What place. was it about 1968 that was special? Well, it was the first solo non-stop round-the-world race ever. And it's the first time that uh, someone actually accomplished to sail nonstop around the world on their own. Mm -hmm. um, so, so they built this race around that. Exactly. It's basically a replica. So the boats have to um, conform to that era. So it's old boats with long keels and um, they're not very big. The biggest you can have is a 36 foot. And you can't have any of the technology that you have in modern days. It has to all conform back to that era. So. My goodness. Well, we're going to talk about your boat in a moment. Mini haha. But first of all, your piece of music that you're going to share with us, maybe something which you would also listen to out there. 
Yes, I um, I love um, Chopin, and the music I'd like the piece of music I'd like to share is a fantasy impromptu.
That's the Fantasy Impromptu by Chopin. And it was the first choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Kirsten Neuscheffer. And as I said earlier, she's one of only two South African entrants in the 2022 Golden Globe race. And also the only woman. And we were talking about boats just before this. There's so many questions I want to ask you, Kirsten. <laughs> but I said your boat was called Minihaha. Tell me about Minihaha. So um, Minahaha is a... Oh, is that how you pronounce it? Minahaha. Yes. Okay. Um, so uh, she's a Cape George 36 cutter. So she has one mast and um, they build them on the west coast of the U.S. in Washington State. And she's quite a classic old school design, long keel, um, nice long bowsprit. And uh, she's a heavy design uh, boat, so she's got quite a tall rig. So you can carry quite a lot of sail to make up for the weight on that boat. And get some speed as well, I presume. Yes. From, from yeah. And the beauty about uh, her is people think she might be slow because she's heavy, but she's long on the waterline. And uh, the longer a vessel is on the waterline, the faster it is. So okay. um, that's uh, one of the reasons I chose her, but also because she's just incredibly solid. She's been built uh, really rugged and she's sea kindly and um I believe she can carry me through this race from beginning to end. So. Have you done anything big with her before? Um, I have uh, sailed from Prince Edward Island down to Cape Town with her. And I just oh. got into Cape Town at the end of January. So that was um, 56 days. My solo trip on her, my sort of maiden voyage on her as well. And um, Oh, so you went to fetch her up at Port uh, the Edward, Prince Edward Prince Island. Edward. And then sailed her back to Cape Town. Yes, actually, it was more than that. I bought her up in Newfoundland, Canada, and um, I bought her at the uh, beginning of 2020, just before the pandemic broke out. And then I couldn't get to her because of the pandemic. Mm. So by the time I got to her, it was November, and it was winter in Canada, and things were icing over really rapidly. So I left Newfoundland, and I didn't go any further than Prince Edward Island. I hauled her out in Prince Edward Island, and I spent 10 months there refitting her. And then oh. once I was done, I um, left Prince Edward Island for Cape Town. Why did you have to refit her? Well, she's an old boat. She was launched in uh, 1988, and uh, she had been standing on the hard for about four years, and she was in a bit of a state of neglect. So there was a lot of things we had to um, fix on the boat. Um, there were like the bulwarks were rotten, and there were leaks in the deck. And she had an old wooden mast, and we had to um, replace the wooden mast with an aluminium mast, and just reinforce her wherever we could because. Uh, to take a boat on a race like this is the most challenging thing a boat is ever going to experience in its <laughs> lifetime too. I'm so, sure. <laughs> so we had to make her really, really strong. What made you buy her? Did you see an advertisement? or? Yes, I um, did my research into the permitted designs for the race and uh, she wasn't actually on the list, but she ticked all the boxes. So w once I discovered her, a friend of mine in Seattle actually said, this could be a winning boat and mm. I, I liked the lines I liked all the numbers on the boat and then I made my mind up that that was the design I wanted and there aren't many of them around and they're classic so they're quite sought after so um, she was advertised um, in Newfoundland and I was in Maine at the time so I took a quick flight up to Newfoundland I saw her I fell in love with her and I knew that's the boat that I, I want for this race. So. <laughs> and you sailed her all the way back to Cape Town. Yes I did 7,700 nautical miles. Yeah. Wow yeah. good grief. And the inside of the boat, is it fairly comfortable? Do you, do you live in relative luxury? Yes. <laughs> Maybe luxury is not the right word, but you know what I mean. Yes. Comfortable. She, she is very comfortable inside. I must say, um, for me on my own, a 36 foot boat, it's, there's plenty of space. I'm, 
and uh, and she's comfortable. And we did revamp her a little bit inside, redid the paintwork and everything. Um, you know, I've got a little shower and a little galley inside and everything. I don't use the shower because um, I don't want to use my fresh water, but she's very livable. So. Mm-hmm. so how do you shower? Do you jump into the sea? Um, I do in the tropics. I would, if, if you know, there's calm wind, I would just have a swim around the boat and, uh, you know, dive under the hull and check whether there's growth <laughs> and barnacles on the hull. <laughs> or I'd, um, I've got a little boarding ladder, so I would put a harness on, a safety harness, but then I'd drag behind the ladder. Oh, right, and that's right. a lot of fun in the tropics from where the water's warm. Um, but then if it's a bit stormier or whatever, then I just hoist water in a bucket and, and you know, have Wash a wash out yes. on the deck. So. And the uh, navigation part, is that all terribly modern as well? No, so that's the other very interesting challenge about this race. Is yes, because it's, it's um, celestial, isn't it? Yes. It's not um, the usual. Yes. You've got to use a celestial system. Yeah, you can't use a GPS at all. Oh. Um, you can have one that's in a sealed uh, bucket or container. If you break the seal, you're disqualified. But uh, you need to you need to use a compass and dead reckoning and an old trailing log and a sextant to do celestial navigation. So, <laughs> Gosh, and yeah. how good are you at celestial navigation? Um, well, I did practice all the way down from Canada. I'd mm-hmm. learnt it and I'd previously, you know, done a few sun sites and a few star sites just out of interest and to kill time at sea. But this time I actually was doing parallel celestial to the GPS navigation and um, and I was actually getting better at it as I was going along and it was a really interesting learning curve. At first I thought, gee, this is a tedious way to try and find out where you are, but <laughs> it actually becomes very rewarding when you realize that you were able to calculate your position. So, right. yeah. And when you are out there racing after the start, I suppose you don't see anyone else, that everyone else disappears into their own areas. Pretty much, yeah. You see the um, fleet uh, disperses quite quickly and it's mm. probably quite unlikely that you'd see other competitors. However, they're probably the closest people within uh, VHF radio range that you could maybe have a chat to. Yeah. Um, and then depending on the area that you're sailing and there might be a lot of other shipping, but if you're down in the Southern Ocean, there's pretty much nothing down there. So you could go for weeks and weeks and not see a soul. And in fact, even coming down to Cape Town, I went for weeks that I didn't even see another ship or anything like that. Gosh, so. that's interesting. And um, with the Southern Ocean, you mentioned slightly earlier, it was it's famous, is it, for its swells and storms? Yes, because the Southern Ocean um, basically surrounds the Antarctic continent and there's no land mass really to break the the power of the ocean down there mm. except um, when you get close to Cape Horn and the Antarctic Peninsula it forms like a little bit of a constriction where all the weather has to pass through so the Drake Passage is actually one of the scariest areas uh, to sail through but yeah so you get um, you know just consistent storms moving around right around that ocean and they call it because you drop down into um, 40 degrees south and further south so they call it the Roaring Forties. That's right famously the Roaring Forties because of that. Yeah. Does that not happen at the North Pole in the Arctic Circle? Um, not really because uh, in the Northern Hemisphere it's basically the inverse of that where you've got the Arctic Ocean which is partially frozen and then you've got a lot of land mass around it, mm-hmm. um, all the continents up there. So yeah. the Northern Oceans are quite different to this unbroken stretch of Southern Ocean. Let's have a, another choice of music for oh. us to relax from. <laughs> <laughs> what, have, what have you chosen next, um, I have chosen a um, track by Lenny Gallant, who's a Prince Edward Island artist, and uh, the track's name is Selkie.
took a walk under the blood moon late at night Barefoot at the edge of an ocean that shone so bright Thought I heard a song drifting on the rolling sea A voice that sweetly sang like a lost cell key I need you tonight like a magic skin Let your hair fall down by the water, baby, let me in I need you tonight, I just can't wait for the changing tide No Send me a sign to show me where you sleep Give me the key to secrets that you keep How long must I search this rocky shore It's just a taste of you I'm dying for I need you tonight like a magic skin Let your hair fall down by the water, baby, let me in I need you tonight, I just can't wait for the changing musician called Lenny Gallant, apparently all the way from Prince Edward Island. Prince Edward, so simple. And the choice of my guest, who is Kirsten Neuschaffer, absolutely intriguing me with her stories of yachts, 
because Kirsten is one of only two South African entrants in this year's Golden Globe race, which begins when? In September, did you say? 4th of September, yes. And now what are you doing in the meantime? I was reading somewhere that you need to get used to storms. Is that right? Was yes, practicing storm tactics is pretty paramount to surviving this race. So um, that's one of the things I uh, still hope to do a little bit more of. And I'm still fine-tuning and tweaking my boat. There's there's always stuff to do on a boat. You're never ready. <laughs> um, so I'm at the East Key Boatyard in the V&A waterfront I'm working on the boat at the moment. And then uh, once I'm done, I still need to sail all the way up to France to the start line. So I'll have another good practice. Oh, so you're going to sail up to France? Yes, yes. Will you go through the sewers? Uh, no, I'll um, go up the Atlantic and mm. um, I'll go pretty far offshore, St. Helena, Ascension Island, Cape Verde, and maybe past the Azores and then head, head over towards Europe. And how long so, will that take? Uh, that's If I take my time, um, it probably I'd give myself a good two months, but I could probably get there within 55 days or something, 50, right. 55 days. Gosh, you're going to yeah. sail all that way and then set out on the race. Indeed. So I'm doing a lot of miles ahead of the race <laughs> just for practice. How do you practice storms? Are you doing it here off the coast of Cape Town? Uh, yeah, it, it would be a good place. I was actually um, hoping and not hoping um, that on my way into Cape Town, where you do get into the Southern Ocean, that I would have experienced a bit um, of more stormy weather so I could have practiced my tactics. Uh, but it is a, definitely a good place to go and practice. And I'm pretty sure that on my way from here up to France, I'll probably have a little blow here or there as well. So. <laughs> a little blow here or there. And if you get into trouble, can you contact people to say, my boat shattered, can you come and rescue me? Yes, you can. So um, that's the one, when it comes to safety, the rules are pretty modern. So we have modern tracking devices, which for one allows the audience to watch the fleet and follow the race, but it's also a safety feature because at all times the race organizers know our exact coordinates. So if we were in trouble, they'd see where we are and we have sat phones that in an emergency you can make a call and say, I'm in trouble. And we also have modern uh, rescue beacons that would send out a satellite signal that would show there's a distress and it would show the position of the distress. Okay. But um, apart from the physical side of the race and the safety of the yacht and keeping you safe mentally, are you um, okay out there? You don't ever think this is madness. A helicopter's got to come and take you home immediately. <laughs> well, I had a moment thinking this is madness actually when I left uh, Canada to mm. come down here because it w I left in the beginning of December and it was already wintry. I left, it was minus eight degrees and I had to boil kettles of water to untie my mooring lines oh, and stuff like goodness, that yes. and I needed to get out of there before it got colder but the winter storms were already approaching so I left in 45-50 knots under storm trisail and as I was going out I was thinking this is madness <laughs> 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 but once I was out there I was actually um, quite happy and ironically the further offshore you are the less dangers you have so the more relaxed you become and I've never had a thought where I thought no I, I, I need a heli lift out of here <laughs> <laughs> so good and Kirsten, here's the question now. What prompted you to do this in your life? It's an extraordinary thing to do. What happened? Well, I feel um, like saying what happened rather than <laughs> what caused you to do it. Well, I think I've always loved adventure. I've really always thrived on it. Uh, when I was 22, I cycled through Africa from north to south um, on my own. I like solo adventures as well because I like that feeling of absolute self-sufficiency. 
And I love sailing. I've been sailing since 2006 as a profession. And it's just like the next challenge up. And it's a race that for me is attainable because it is classified as an amateur race. So the budget isn't, you know, excessive like it would be in the Vendée Globe or something like that. Yeah. What, what about funding? How does that work? Um, it's quite difficult. You can try and get corporate sponsorship or, or private funding or whatever. And uh, with the pandemic, funding has been difficult because, mm. you know, companies don't have that kind of money. Um, but I've been very lucky that I've had a lot of uh, private sailing enthusiasts that have helped me, whether they've lent me money, given me money, um, given me services, given me equipment, whatever it may be, to help me along my way here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You said you started sailing very early. I think since her childhood, you've been sailing dinghies. Where were you born? And I mean, what sort of family do you come from? Do you come from a seafaring family? Um, not quite. I was actually born inland in Pretoria. And I learned to sail on the Hattabiasport Dam. And my dad is very keen on sailing, though. It was always his dream to sail around the world. He, in fact, started building his own boat when he was a young man. But he never managed to materialize that dream because he had children. <laughs> so <laughs> got I, in the way. Yeah. You see, you got in the way. <laughs> Pretty much. So, um, but, but he had always spoken to me about it. So I thought one day in life I'd like to go and see what it's like to sail and explore. By so do your parents to. support you? They do. They really do. So which is great, um, especially you know, both of them, my mother too, they say, go for it. This is a dream. You must do it. Yeah. So. Because it must be worrying for them because you're not in contact. In fact, you're out on the open sea for seven months and they will have to rely on your professionalism and strength and robustness. Yeah, I assume it is quite worrying. I know my mother has worried about me on other little adventures that I've undertaken, and she's always said, you'll never understand the worry of a mother. So, um, yeah, so I'm my poor mother. (laughs) Your poor mother. And is this, like, going to be a career? Because the other thing is you've helped people like National Geographic and BBC with series, haven't you, down in the Antarctic and elsewhere? Yes, I worked on a high-latitude expedition sailboat, and we would take... um, film crews often or scientists or mountaineers down to Antarctica or South Georgia to these high latitude islands and they'd film and get their footage so <laughs> that was always very exciting because it's stormy weather down there you're dealing with icebergs and um, you're in very remote isolated areas so if anything goes wrong if there's something to fix on the boat you need to know how to do it yourself mm-hmm. so. but then at least it's not isolation you're not alone no then there you're with crew but it can be quite challenging being with a crew on a small boat where you can't get off the boat so that's the <laughs> flip side to oh, it. okay, yes. <laughs> but yeah no. All right, Kirsten, let's have another piece of music now. Do I see the name Bob Marley lurking here? Indeed. I, I love Bob Marley, one <laughs> of my favorite artists. And Will uh, he be on your boat, on your cassette? He will definitely be on my boat because um, his music cheers me up. Okay, what are we going to listen to? Jamming. Yeah. 
there they are jamming is what that track was called and it was the choice of kirsten neuscheffer my guest on people of note this week kirsten is a lone yachtsman or yachtswoman i suppose who's about to embark on the 2022 golden globe race as she said some seven months from france to new zealand you end up in new zealand france to france oh you go back to france right around the globe yes wow Right. Anyway, I'm now going to pretend I know everything about yachts. <laughs> I read here, Kirsten, which I don't, by the way, I read here Kirsten's longest single handing was a delivery from Portugal to South Africa with only a wind vane as self-steering on an old and maintenance-intensive 32-foot ferro-cement sloop. What was that about? What is a single handing? Well, it just means sailing solo without any other crew, just one person um, manning the boat. And, um, yeah, and that was uh, actually someone who'd built his own ferrous cement. He'd gone cruising with his family. He'd landed up in Portugal, and he wanted his boat delivered back to East London, South Africa. Uh, and he asked me if I'd do the delivery, and I said I would, but I asked him whether he'd mind if I went single-handed. And he said, you do what you do, just get me my boat back. <laughs> <laughs> so you wanted to go single-handed? I did, because a lot of owners, as you can imagine, are reluctant to give their boats to someone else to sail alone, because yes. the risk is bigger when you're sailing alone. So the fact that this person was willing to let me sail his boat alone was my first opportunity to do a long passage like that solo. 
And also it says here intensive, maintenance intensive boat. Yes, because it was uh, quite an old boat. It had a very old engine that didn't really work properly. And um, the sails were old, so they were tearing the whole time. And I had plenty of practice stitching sails and various <laughs> other little odds and ends um, that needed to be repaired, which was very good exposure to troubleshooting at sea. And what about this thing, uh, this term wind vane, self-steering wind vane, what is that? So it's a mechanical self-steering that existed back in 1968 as well already. And what you do is you set your boat to a wind angle. And as long as the wind doesn't change direction, your boat will hold course on that direction. Because it's kind of got a vane blade at the back of the boat. And if the boat falls off course, the blade tilts and it moves the rudder and it sets your Boat oh, back right. on course. So, sort of almost crude, but clearly it worked well for many, many years. Yes, it works in incredibly well. It's still a very popular way of um, getting a boat to steer itself um, because there's no electronics involved. So, if something breaks, you can fix it with nuts and bolts and zip ties and all that kind of thing. Okay. Um, and it doesn't draw electricity, so you don't run your batteries down using it as a modern autopilot would. Now, on your boat, Minahaha, is it all sort of technical and high tech? The steering and all that? Um, no, because it still has to conform to what was available oh, course, in, in 1968. 1968. So on Minahaha, I also have a wind vane self-steering system. It is a modernized wind vane self-steering system, hydro vane, and it's a beautiful piece of equipment that, that works <laughs> really, really well. Really. Um, and without it, it would be near impossible to do a thing like that because you do need your boat to hold course so that you can sleep and set sails and cook yourself something to eat and read a book and all that kind of thing. Mm. So. And how do you sleep on these long-haul passages like that? Do you sleep comfortably, relaxed? It really depends on where you are. If you're close to a coast, um, you don't really sleep that relaxed because there's more shipping around the coast and land is always a danger to a vessel. There's reefs, there's shallows, there's sandbanks, um, there could be currents, all sorts of things. Uh, especially if you're sailing close inshore, if you fell asleep and, and the, your boat altered course towards the shore, you might find yourself wrecked. Um, but if you're in the middle of the ocean where there's no traffic and, say, in the trade winds where the wind's really consistent, well, then you could sleep easily for six hours. Um, but you always sleep lightly so yes, that if yes. there's a noise that's unusual, if the boat's motion changes, you wake up. So. Mm -hmm. Gosh, it sounds sort of scary being out on the sea and in the pitch dark and sailing along just on its own with this wind vane. Yes, it's amazing, though, the night can definitely be scary, especially if you're in, in storms and rough weather. And usually when something goes wrong, Murphy's Law would have it. It happens at night when you can't really see what's happening. <laughs> yes, Murphy's Law indeed. <laughs> yeah. But you also have these absolutely beautiful starry nights where you watch the stars. And, and especially in the tropics, it's where it's not cold, where you, you can spend hours out on the deck and appreciate the night, which is something I don't think one does that much on land because you tend to go to sleep at night and that's well, the end of that. Do, yes. so and with the light from the cities exactly. and all that you don't. And out there you could have beautiful clear skies. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Do you have electricity or it's all battery operated presumably? Yes, so we've got quite a, um, a decent battery bank so you can run LEDs. That's another modern thing we are allowed using is LED lights so they don't draw your batteries down. And, oh, you, can, yeah, yeah. and you can run your navigation lights off it and you can run things like cassette players and do you have um, a radar system where you can tell whether there's another ship in the, the We're vicinity? not allowed radar um, for the race, 
but uh, we are allowed what's called AIS, which is Automatic Identification System. And usually um, all ships have to have it over 50 meters. And it pops up on a screen and it tells you the vessel's name and its speed over ground, course over ground, all that. We're not allowed the screen. We're only allowed an alarm. So if the alarm detects um, AIS frequency, it will sound. And then you know that there's a ship in the vicinity. So it will wake you. You won't know where the ship is. So you'll have to um, scan the horizon. But um, it is a safety measure. So. Um, my goodness me. It really, I don't know why you do this. Really, I don't. <laughs> um, and also cycling across Africa, as you said. So you, it's the solitary thing that really appeals. I want to ask you a strange question. Are you a spiritual person? Yes, I would say I'm a spiritual person, and I and I, th- I think that's why I like these kind of adventures. I love nature, so I love being out of nature, and I guess that's my way of convening with the earth that I'm on in some mm. in some form. Mm. And the same goes for the single-handed sailing. You know. Well, we're going to have another piece of music now, which I see we're back to some classical music with Debussy, Claire de Lune. Is this something very special to you? Yes, I uh, learned to play the piano as a child, and it was one of the pieces that I learned to play, and I always liked Debussy very much. So. Can you still play the piano? I have not played it in many, many years, so okay. the answer to that is probably no. So there's not a piano on the boat? On <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately <laughs> not. That's why I've lost the piano playing. <laughs> oh okay, well, let's remind you of your piano playing youth. Here's Debussy's Claire de Lune.
there's that beautiful piece by Debussy called Claire de Lune, and Kirsten Neuscheffer told me, or I think you told us that you used to play the piano, and that was one of the pieces you played. Kirsten is one of two South Africans on the Golden Globe race, which begins on the 4th of September, and which apparently is going to take seven months. I got confused, that's why I made that mistake just now, Kirsten, about ending in New Zealand. Because just let me get this right. You leave France, you come down, and then you take over. You go towards Brazil. Yes, you head towards Brazil because that's how the trade winds would blow you. And then uh, as you get further south, you um, start heading towards east past South Africa. So you pass South Africa, and then you continue across the southern Indian Ocean to pass Australia and New Zealand. And then you continue across the whole of the Southern Pacific to get past Cape Horn, which is, of course, the pinnacle for all sailors. <laughs> and once you've rounded the horn, you're back in the Atlantic, and then you sail all the way back up to France. Why is it the pinnacle? I think you hinted at it earlier. Is it because you said the weather goes through there or something? Yes, it's known to be really stormy around Cape Horn. And um, also, you land up going much further south to clear the horn because the horn juts so far south. So you get um, down to about latitude 56 degrees south um, and you getting through the Drake Passage which is where a lot of the weather gets funneled through that's crossed the entire southern ocean. I get the impression that you quite like the idea of stormy weather. I do to a degree. <laughs> I, I like experiencing the elements, um, yes. but of course, within reason, I wouldn't want you know to have a capsizing or anything like that. No, but, of yeah. course. But it is quite an amazing experience to experience the power of the ocean down there. And the Southern Ocean is beautiful because it generates this really long period swell. And if you catch the right kind of wind and the right kind of swell, it, your boat surfs that swell, and you just you could just get blown along with the elements. Wow. So. But sometimes those swells can be terrifying, and a yacht it must be. Uh, when I was on the QE2, I'm boasting here, I was told we were going through very rough seas in the Bay of Biscay, famously, mm-hmm. and they were crashing over the bow of the ship because we were on the bridge. We'd made friends with the officers, and they said it was a 15-meter swell, and I thought, gosh. But it was. It was a 15-meter mm-hmm. swell. And sitting on a yacht, that must be rather terrifying. It's, it can definitely be very terrifying. And you you consistently worried about something breaking. So, mm. yeah, it can mm. be scary, very scary. Kirsten, just because we're nearing the end of the program now, what is there anything you miss when you go on these uh, long trips like this? You said you take some music with you, some books to read. Is there anything, and that you like isolation, is mm. there anything that you miss? Yes, I, I miss Fresh food for one, <laughs> vegetables yes, and course. fruits and yes. that kind of thing and luxuries like ice cream and, and that sort. And I miss even just the smell of land because there's no smell out there and you don't hear crickets and you don't hear songbirds and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then for sure I miss I miss my family, my mother in particular, um, especially when I can't t- talk to her. Um, so, so yeah, there's definitely things I miss. But the beauty of it is when I do get back to land, um, it just is so much more incredible to have all those things back yes. again. Oh, good so. answer, right. And talking about sounds that you get on Earth, the sea has its sound, but it's just that constant whoosh, isn't it, really? Yes. There's no kind of differentiation in stuff. No, and you don't ever get silence out at sea. No, no, that's um, true. So the, the silence is something I also sometimes um, miss. 
the only time you get close to silence is if you'll be calmed and there's no engine running and there's no uh, wind blowing through your rig. But even then, there's always still a bit of swell, so your boat's still rocking backwards and forwards and there's always something creaking in the, in the background. So, yes, yes. So, yeah. And clearly you don't get seasick. <laughs> um, I do actually on the odd occasion get no, seasick. When I left Canada in 15 knots, I must admit that I wasn't feeling too well at all. <laughs> so. Now, when you leave Cape Town to go to sail up to France to start, are you going to do it with a flare? Are there going to be people and photographs and crowds? I don't think so. I'll probably just uh, quietly slip off in the night. <laughs> <laughs> but you, are you going to leave at night? Not necessarily, okay. but I, I'd probably... Um, the thing is, it's difficult often to arrange a whole fanfare like that because you leave on the good weather. So mm, you yeah. go when the weather's good and yes. when you're ready. So. <sighs> and will you be nervous? <laughs> Leaving, yeah, I think there's always a, a bit of nervousness when you're leaving port mm -hmm. um, until you get into the groove of being out at sea again and your sea legs back and everything. There's and always a bit of anxiety. And so. then you feel back at home in your own turf, so to speak. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, conversely, when you're approaching land, you get nervous as well because there are other land things like reefs and shipping and all that that you suddenly have to concentrate on. Whereas when you've got all the sea room in the world in the middle of the ocean, you can be at peace. <laughs> so. It's exhilarating talking to you, I have to say, even though I'm terrified of what you do. You were talking about storms. Just finally, very quickly, Cape Town now going into winter is going to have some rough seas for you to practice, won't it? Yes, except I'll probably miss the winter storms because I plan to head off here in April sometime. Oh, so, as early as yeah, that, yes. Yeah. Okay. Well... I don't know what to say anymore, except congratulations and best of luck. Do I wish you luck? Thank you so much. On this Thank trip. you very much. Does it get lots of media coverage where we know where you are and what you're up to? Uh, yes. Like I say, the audience can track the fleet by tracking devices um, on the internet. There's a site that will show at all times where they are. And there are so-called photo gates where the boats do have to approach land, one's off Cape Town, and the organizers will come out and they'll do an interview and they'll screen that. So there is um, some measure of media coverage as well. Oh, okay. Uh, all right. Well, as I say, Kirsten, best of luck. And um, maybe contact us when you get back and it would be great to talk to you again and you tell us about your adventure. How about that? For sure. I might it, have a lot to say because I would have been deprived of conversation yes, for you so will. long. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, you're allowed to choose one more piece and you've chosen only the ocean. Jack Johnson, Johnson yes. What's yeah. this all about? All? Um, Jack Johnson just makes really nice acoustic music. I've always liked him and um, he's a surfer. He loves the ocean, so a lot of his music uh, lyrics are about the ocean. So you'll be have that on your compilation as well on the boat? I will. If I can somehow get his music onto cassette player, then I will do that as well. <laughs> yes, so. It's rather crude, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? But yes. anyway... Um, so I've been speaking to Kirsten Neuscheffer, who is one of two South African entrants in the Golden Globe race, and in fact the only woman in the race. So congratulations for that, and um, good luck. Bon thank, voyage. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been great fun talking to you today. Decision to go to the water for reason. 
It's only the ocean and you And all of these lines Will all be erased so They go out with the tide They come back with the waves so It's only the ocean and you You don't want People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. If 